Gabby's keto never goes outside. I would have been fighting all morning and, and he would have let me in the car before. The gentleman was slapping the girl. They had a tumultuous relationship at best. I love the van. We came across a white van that had Florida plates. I picked up Brian. I saw him from TikTok. Where's your son? To never get caught. He has to be absolutely perfect. Remember Gabby. Gabby has become America's daughter. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters. Every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome to The Debrief. I'm Paisy Cheng. The search for Gabby Petito began as a missing persons case in Suffolk County. The search for her took us all the way to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where her stepdad, Jim Schmidt, had gone to help authorities look for her. The family had been holding out hope that she was still alive. Hello, hello, and good morning. Now we find ourselves in Northport, Florida, where Gabby had been living with her fiance, Brian Laundrie. This memorial near City Hall began when they were still searching for Gabby, and it has only grown since Gabby's been found dead. The disappearance of Gabby Petito took a turn her family and investigators most feared. It's the news her family didn't want to hear. Remains that resembled Gabby were discovered in a remote camping area of the Tetons. Days later, the coroner confirmed it was Gabby and that she had died by homicide. The coroner said the manner of death was still pending, but it put her fiance and travel companion under an even greater spotlight. Now Brian Laundrie has a warrant out for his arrest for using someone else's debit card and is a person of interest in an FBI homicide investigation. To learn what that means and how that changes the current search, we asked former FBI investigator Wayson Dunn to break it down. Now that Gabby's body has been determined to have died by homicide, does that change Brian Laundrie's status? I mean, they still call him a person of interest, but is he that or is he a suspect? Well, you know, it could be either. The reason they have not announced uh, a change in status is probably uh, because they don't really have uh, any conclusive evidence uh, suggesting who did it. Uh, the last I heard, they have not even released the exact cause of death yet. So that'll be a, a key bit of information. Uh, when the information is finally uh, released as to what caused her death. And do you think they're withholding that information or th do they just not know? That's a tough question. I think that at this point, probably they are still working to find a definitive answer. In cases like this, where a victim has been deceased for a number of days, you have to do a lot of lab tests, toxicology, serology, and things of that nature to really find a conclusive cause of death unless there's something obvious such as a gunshot wound or something like that. So it's not unusual that it would take a few days. And I'm sure they uh, want to be very careful given the high profile of this investigation. The um, Florida police have been going back to this preserve now for the, I think today's the fourth day, uh, fourth full day. Is he even here? What are the chances that he's inside this preserve? You know, since he was last seen leaving on foot, there's probably still a good chance. I think what they're probably going to be doing is a combination of things. One is, of course, they are searching the reserve, but I would suspect law enforcement is also identifying and interviewing all of his known contacts, friends and family, to find out, first of all, if they have information about places he may likely go. 
and also to find out if they have had any contact with him and when that last contact was. I don't know whether he was a skilled outdoorsman, whether he's the type of person that can survive in the wild for a, a lengthy period of time, but that's certainly something investigators would want to look at as well. Well, we just spoke to someone, a seasoned Florida native who knows what that preserve is like, and his exact words to me were, Bear Grylls would have a hard time surviving there. Yeah, that's what I suspect from what little I know about that area. It's it's possible he's still there. It's possible something happened to him. But the big question is, what was his plan? You know, what was his plan when he went there? The other thing is, it appears that they have seized uh, some types of digital media, hard drives and, and things of that nature. So I suspect they're going to be looking through that to find out if there are any clues, any indications of what his plan was. So the day the FBI went to his house and executed the search warrant, that was the day that the Florida police said they were going to stop searching, they were going to suspend their search because they didn't think it was going to be fruitful. But then the very next day after they raided his house, they went back in and did a full-scale search, but on a different side of the park. Is it possible they got some information from this search that brought them back to that preserve? It certainly is. The timing events would suggest that perhaps they did see something that would uh, give them a reason to resume the search, something that may indicate a specific area or location or an area he was familiar with. The other thing that I, I think is important to point out is that the mere fact a search warrant was obtained and executed indicates that law enforcement has probable cause that some type of crime was committed uh, because you can't get a search warrant unless you can articulate what crime you think was committed and why you think the search location may contain evidence of that crime. And furthermore, you, you actually have to specify the type of evidence that you're seeking. So all three of those criteria have obviously been met if they executed a search warrant. And they did take computers. They said, and I think in the search warrant, they said they took a hard drive and cell phones. But I haven't heard a lot about them triangulating the phone or, you know, looking where the phone pinged. Is that another way they could be finding Brian Laundry right now? he still has an active cell phone that is not in possession of law enforcement, they would certainly try to determine where the signal from that phone is coming from. And in your experience, does it surprise you that he has been on the run for this long and that they haven't been able to track him down? Nothing surprises me. Secondly, you really can never predict what's really going on. In this case, the fact that he has not been willing to speak to police, but it's my understanding that's under advice of counsel, which is his right, but then followed by his mysterious disappearance certainly raises more questions than answers. This is a very unusual investigation. And also his parents. I bet there's a fine line between taking the fifth and obstructing justice. Do you think that line's been crossed? You know, that's a great question because his parents cannot really take the fifth in terms of incriminating him. They could take the fifth, plead the fifth, if they feel like a speaking to law enforcement might incriminate themselves. So that's the key question. If they are not cooperating on advice of counsel because they feel there may be some personal jeopardy, that is their constitutional right. If they're not cooperating to protect somebody else, 
And if they are aware that a crime has been committed, then potentially, uh, yes, they could be guilty of um, being involved in some type of obstructive activity. Now, you know, everyone that's been commenting on this story seems to be very, shares the frustration that it seems like Ryan Laundry is about three days, maybe a week ahead of everybody else. Now that the FBI is involved, and it's, as we know, their reach is very uh, wide and vast, do you think that there will be more tools available now for authorities to help track him down? Oh, absolutely. The FBI brings not only uh, a national and international reach, but a very sophisticated technical tools that many local law enforcement agencies do not have. At some point, somebody has to find a way to uh, sustain themselves, either by living off the land, perhaps uh, stealing goods and supplies, which some fugitives in the past have done and which led to their capture or by uh, expending either cash or using a credit card or, or accessing a checking account. So there will be a way for them to find out if he has left a trail anywhere. There's always a way, it may take a while. These cases are very difficult because trying to find someone who does not want to be found can be very, very challenging. So now the question is, where's Brian? We're here in Venice, Florida, right in front of the Carlton Reserve. It is a 25,000 acre nature preserve that police have been searching now for several days for any sign of Brian. So far, they haven't found anything of note, but they also brought in dive teams to check the large ponds and pools of water that have developed because of all the rainfall that's happened here. Police are taking all-terrain vehicles into the swamp-like preserve. When they can't drive through a puddle or pond, they send drones up. Divers have also swam into the large bodies of water seeking clues, but still nothing. Trey Ward is very familiar with the terrain inside the preserve. What are the odds Brian has been able to survive in this very slim. The preserve is 75% underwater this time of year. There are plenty of snakes, panthers, and alligators. We saw a few small ones on our ride. Nobody's living in this. Uh, nobody's hiding out in this. But something has to tell them, hey, we, we need to try one more time. Something that is still not clear, the Laundry's family role in all of this. According to police, Brian drove Gabby's van all the way from Wyoming to Florida without Gabby. But at that point, no missing persons reports were ever filed. That was September 1st. On September 11th, Gabby's mother, Nicole, reported her missing to Suffolk County Police. On September 14th, Brian Laundrie allegedly went hiking at Carlton Reserve. On Wednesday, when he didn't come home, his parents went to the preserve and saw his car and drove it home. Why did they do that? And why didn't they report him missing to police until Friday, September 17th? Me and Brian just got up and got ready, made the bed in the tent, set up. Um, I think our plan for today is to just hang out here in the tent. Um, Brian's stretching, doing some morning yoga. The couple posted their journey on social media, documenting every step of the way. And it was social media that helped lead police to Gabby Petito. Hi, my name is Miranda Baker. And on August 29th, my boyfriend and I picked up Brian at Grand Teton National Park. 
kind of freaky for a late Saturday evening, but we just kind of had a brain fart. Oh my God, there's that van. So if you get anybody can help, I know the FBI is looking for all the help they can get on the case. People call the FBI with their tips and share their videos, giving agents a more specific place to search. In a very short time, they found Gabby's remains. To help us sort through this, we're joined by Scott Bond, a criminologist and author. So what do you think? Did social media find Gabby? Well, I, I think that it provided assistance, and I believe that some of the authorities have acknowledged as much and thanked the public for their participation. So I would say yes. I mean, I was in Wyoming days before these videos and this information surfaced, and literally it was difficult for us to find any ground searches that were happening. But almost overnight, when, you know, first the TikToker, Miranda, the woman on TikTok, Miranda Baker, described how she picked him up as a hitchhiker and gave very specific locations and times where he was in the park. And then the family that's traveling in an RV, they had video that pinpointed their Gabby's transit van in a very specific part of the park. I mean, how do these clues help investigators? I kind of look at this as, uh, I'm gonna use an analogy. You wanna take a drink, but you're taking a drink from a fire hose. Some is good, but it can also be overwhelming and too much. The authorities really have to pick and choose. They have to pick and choose between what they believe is truly valuable and what might just be individuals who are injecting themselves in the case for their own amusement. So you need law enforcement authorities who are also technological experts to essentially suss these things out. That must have been pretty difficult for them to sort through, right? I mean, they got so many tips and uh, the Florida police spokesman said 95, maybe 99% of the tips were no good. So, Absolutely. you know, how do you do that? How do you do that quickly, sifting through all these tips and, you know, getting to the good ones? You um, must have and local agencies have, and of course the FBI would be the most sophisticated uh, of all, of, of having essentially their own expert web sleuths in-house who are able to look at these images and the information that's provided and determine whether or not they are legit. There are individuals who are looking for their own celebrity status um, and creating essentially storylines and dramas around themselves. There are a certain number of people in this investigation, in this hunt for Gabby's killer, who will do and are doing exactly that. So that's why I use that fire hose analogy. You know, a little is good, but it can be overwhelming too when you want to take a drink of water. What do you think is the fascination by America with solving crimes themselves? I mean, you just had to take a look at some of these posts. You know, I, I would tweet something and I would get 10 different comments about, wait, did you see this? Wait, did you look, did you see her sandals behind the van? Wait, did you see, you know, everyone is so excited to put these pieces together. It's not even just in the United States. In the last few days, I've gotten inquiries from France, from Australia, from Japan. It's absolutely incredible how this story has become the, the OJ story of the moment. So many people have said to me, there are plenty of people that go missing. Why is this story getting so much attention? I'm sure that you are familiar with the term missing white woman syndrome. 
It's in the vernacular. It's in the popular culture. It absolutely exists. I looked at the latest statistics available from the FBI. Last year, there were 543,000 missing persons total across the country, which is a heck of a lot. 29% were a white woman of any age. Okay. Um, actually, white men represented 30%. So there is actually more missing white men than white women. And the rest are people of color. So what we're saying is 71% of all missing persons last year were not a white woman. And yet how many of them, if any, received much attention either locally or certainly nationally? And the answer is virtually none. And as, as tragic as this is, as tragic as Gabby's disappearance and apparent murder are, I will go on you know, record right now is saying if she was not a young, attractive white woman, you and I would not be having this conversation. If she was old, if she was a person of color, if she did not fit into society's notion of physical attractiveness, we wouldn't be having this conversation. What if that person of color, let's say it was a person of color who was missing, who had an extensive social media history, right? Pictures of their relationship being documented, videos. Do you think that would be the same? Uh, yes. Um, See, I, I think in this case, it's really the videos that make the difference. The, the fact that you can see both the boyfriend, that you can see both uh, the fiance and Gabby before this happened, I think that adds to the intrigue of what oh, happened. Oh, absolutely, Ab absolutely. And I, um, I, I fully agree that this had the makings of a movie of the week from, from day one. We're coming out of the pandemic now. Everyone wants to be released and have adventure um, and romance again. So here you have this attractive young white couple who are on this romantic cross-country adventure that's being documented in the social media, and then something goes wrong. I mean, think about that. That sounds like the intro or the promo for the latest Lifetime movie of the week. Um, right. But if we back up, see, I, I think this whole thing is as much about society, it's about our social norms, expectations of human value and beauty. And that's why I say, if this was an old Korean man who had gone missing, we would not be talking about this. It just, it just wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be happening. Do I agree that the fact that they were tracked on the social media contributed to, to, to this? Without a doubt. And then this young couple is in the TikTok demographic. So there's identification there. If we could, I'd like to take it even a little broader. What is the fascination with true crime in general? You know, I'm a pretty old guy, so I remember playing the old board game Clue, and where you were trying to figure out whether Colonel Mustard did it in the hallway with, with the uh, candlestick. You know, right. this is modern day true crime, whodunit, real time uh, game of Clue. And everyone loves to play armchair detective. So that's part of it too. And let's also not forget, birds of a feather flock together and there's a sense of community that these web sleuths have. They have a, a similar interest, a genuine passion and, and, and interest in all of this and a sense of community where they can banter back and forth. As we're working on this story, you know, I was in Wyoming with the stepdad and he was getting the word out, you know, asking people if they had seen Gabby, asking for information. Then that turned into a very specific search for Gabby. 
and, and while we were there, certain information started leaking out, like the body camera video from mm -hmm. the uh, police interaction in Utah. What does that, does seeing the video really change, you know, how someone feels about the incident? Because we had a narrative of what happened, but seeing the video really enlightens us, right? It shows us different things about the story that we didn't know. I'm going to take a step back because I tend to look at these things sociologically from the standpoint of society as a whole. And I look at these true crime stories as they're like little morality plays. And people love to um, find their point of view and their perspective within in the story. And then they're very, very passionate about it. Is there a visceral aspect of it? There certainly is. Um, and there's also a reason why I believe true crime in general appeals to so many women. True crime definitely skews to a female audience. Are there men who are interested in this? Yes, there, there, there are, of course, but it's certainly percentage-wise more women than men. Why is that? I think there's tremendous identification with the victims in these cases. When I say morality play, what I mean is you look at stories on 2020, Dateline, 48 hours, whatever. And within the 60 minutes, this terrible thing happens. There's a search and usually by the end, there's closure and justice prevails and it makes people feel safe. And I think that particularly for, for women, that's a very powerful thing um, that, that this individual, this uh, has been caught, apprehended. And guess what? The world is, you know, is safe and makes sense again. Since we left New York, I've only set up my hammock once. <laughs> and now we're all the way in Utah, and luckily enough, I was able to set up my hammock. On social media, they appeared to be loving and affectionate, but the police body camera video from Moab, Utah, showed a different side to their relationship. I don't know, we'd have been fighting all morning, and and he wouldn't let me in the car before. And then Why I, wouldn't he let you in the car? Because you have OCD? He told me I needed to calm down. <laughs> but I'm perfectly calm, calm all the time. She just gets worked up sometimes and I try and really distance myself from her. How police acted on that stop, now the subject of an internal review. And it's led many to wonder if her death could have been prevented. Jeffrey Reynolds from Family and Children Association is here to share his thoughts. Many people are, they're looking at this video and there are people that are looking at it in different ways, right? But one thing that people have said is, you know, is there anything that could have prevented Gabby's death? And when you look at the video, you wonder, I mean, it looked like they were in trouble, this couple. So when you look at this video, what are some of your first initial thoughts? It's easy to play Monday morning quarterback now, right? Um, but there's some instructive lessons, I think, here, not only for the police and law enforcement, but for the general public. I think most people looked at the video and saw her in a state of what's been described as hysteria. I was just saying, I'm sorry if I'm in a bad mood. I Sobbing, clearly very upset. And this game was just that she was getting a little worked up and I was saying, no, it's okay, thank you. He was a lot more calm, cool, and collected. And this incident, at least initially, was written up not as a domestic violence case, but as a mental health issue largely focused on her. I would draw a really clear distinction between someone being crazy and somebody being abused. The fact that she's upset doesn't necessarily mean that she's crazy. It could mean that she's enduring a long cycle of abuse. Keep in mind, she was separated from her family and friends by about 3,000 miles on the side of the road with poor Wi-Fi, and she's 22. Some of this really is, is a lesson for law enforcement, but for the rest of us and how we see this. 
there were some other things in the video that left me a little bit unsettled. And that was his collegial nature with the police officers. And so if you saw, there's a point in time where they actually fist bump each other. And then he gets a ride to a hotel where she's left by the side of the road in a van. And I can't imagine that the police officers that left her there aren't having some second thoughts about that. I think we probably all are, and that's normal. Let's go back to that because I noticed that too. He's joking with the cops. He's laughing and she's so upset. She's crying. She's saying to them, he stresses me out so much. He's telling me to calm down, but I'm calm. And instead of recognizing there's a bad dynamic between them, you know, the, the cops in the report actually say at one point he, that Brian didn't look like he was suffering from battered spouse syndrome. I wonder if there wouldn't be a different outcome if a female officer had responded, taken her aside, spent some time with her, built rapport and said, look, tell me what's going on here. Because there seems to be something that's pretty big. Tell me a little bit about how you got to this place. Tell me a little bit about the interactions. It feels like there wasn't enough time spent or enough sensitivity demonstrated. And quite frankly, for victims of domestic violence, when you see male police officers fist bumping your boyfriend, it doesn't necessarily fuel open and honest communication about what's going on. It's like, all right, so they've formed an alliance. They're a team. I'm now sitting in the car looking like the crazy one. Does that happen all too often? I think it does. You know, I think it does. And look, 20, 30 years ago, we had debates about domestic violence and how you can't just come and show up at a house and tell a guy to take a walk around the block and cool off. Because when he does, this is a pattern that continues. It's very strange to me that when we heard the 911 call, it was from a guy who said he saw Brian slap Gabby around. Yeah. And when the cops arrived, I don't know if they ever actually asked Gabby uh, or Brian about, you know, the alleged slapping. Right. That's a big red flag to me. Yeah. Again, I think it's the sensitivity and the duration of the conversation and what's covered. Generally, when you look at the dynamics in young relationships, very often, and if you look at their social media, right, we all know that what you see on social media is generally not reality. This potentially a really significant case in all of that, where, you know, the pictures are happy and smiling and potentially there's something very different going on behind the scenes. There's a whole bunch of stuff we don't yet know about this case, but there's some patterns and some signs that are beginning to emerge. I hope one of the things that we all take away from this is if you know somebody who potentially is struggling with domestic violence, who shows up at work with scratches or bruises, who seems to be afraid of their male partner or spouse, who's answering intrusive questions all hours of the day and night, this is the perfect time. And this is the perfect way to start a conversation about those dynamics and reach out to somebody who might be struggling. It might very well be that Gabby was struggling in an abusive and toxic relationship um, and didn't know who to reach out to. What we do know is that they had a tumultuous relationship at best, right? That's the best term I could use for it. And at the end of this, there was a police intervention and Gabby's dead. That leaves a whole bunch of unanswered questions and probably a whole bunch of people wondering whether or not they could have done something differently. They can in this case, but they can going forward. And there are, there, there are hundreds of thousands of domestic violence victims nationwide who are looking at this case and saying, that's me, I'm Gabby. And I hope somebody's gonna protect me. We have an opportunity to do this better. And that'll do it for this debrief. I'm Paisy Chang, till next time.